Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the 375th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is author Dave Koopman, who's going to talk with us about the 100th anniversary of radio. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kato's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. Our producer and engineer, as always, is the esteemed Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, which is called Farouk Dinarin, and today we'll be talking about the 100th anniversary of radio with author Dave Koopman. <clears throat> Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So to start us off, Dave, can you give us a little bit of background on the development of radio or maybe kind of what the world was like just before radio happened? Well, if, if we're talking radio, we've got to go back, uh, I guess, to everything you've always uh, maybe seen on TV with the old westerns, with the telegraph. Um, I guess you'd have to say that was the very first quote-unquote radio. Um, At least it could transmit messages, let's put it that way, but it had to use wires. Then uh, somewhere along the line, and I can't tell you exactly what year, but something called wireless telegraphy came in. And uh, it used a, they called it a spark gap transmitter, but it allowed the Morse code uh, to be transmitted without wires. It uh, went through the air, not very efficiently, but I guess it worked uh, in most cases. Um, And the reason I say that is because the uh, U.S. Navy uh, put transmitters on all the ships and it set up uh, coastal stations so that um, if there was uh, a distress call or weather reports that were important, um, they could get them to the ship or the ship could get back to the land station someplace. Um, There were a variety of, uh, I guess we'd have to call them uh, ham stations, that started to be created because uh, this was something uh, rather fascinating, the idea that uh, you could communicate um, over distances and with people that you really didn't know. And um, in most cases, those uh, experimental stations would uh, give weather reports or stock market reports or maybe... Uh, a sports score or the scores of important games. Um, thing with that, though, was most of them would maybe be only on the air for five or ten minutes a day uh, or at a time. Uh, radio, as we start to know it, um, I guess you'd have to say it got its start in around 1917 or 18 with the development of something called the vacuum tube, and that allowed voice to go out over the air, and uh, voice and sounds. So that was really, 
I guess you would say, the start of uh, broadcasting and radio especially. Or, well, obviously radio at that time. Television wasn't around yet. Um, but by about 1920, there were enough experimental stations that uh, the government started to license them, and that pretty much started what we know as radio today. Well, Dave, let me ask you, you mentioned that all this early uh, wireless transmission uh, technology was going around. What was it about the vacuum tube that changed where you could, you, you can uh, actually transmit voice and, and uh, sound. What 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 technology uh, allowed that to happen? Oh, gee, thanks. You asked me a tough <laughs> question. Are, don't you have a BA in media transmission? <laughs> BS, media transmission. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, what it allowed was you got rid of that, or it, I shouldn't say rid of, but... Uh, uh, instead of those spark gap transmitters, which were basically, you know, as you saw them in the old Western where uh, they used the uh, telegraph or Morse code sure. key, um, sure. what this allowed was uh, putting the signal out on actual wavelengths. And uh, without getting too technical and, and into areas that I can't, speak very intelligently about or even partially intelligently about but it it allowed um the uh, we'll call it the carrier to be put on a wavelength and then you could tune that wavelength in and uh, uh listen to actual voice in other words the transmit it became a transmitter um, that more or less is used today. Okay, sure. so so Dave, obviously this is a two-pronged system here. We need to have a a uh, a producer at one end who's transmitting the radio waves, yes. and then we need to have a receiver at the other end who's yes. picking that wave up. Yes. So my my question is. How did this technology proliferate? I mean, I can, I guess I can imagine, you know, experimental stations popping up. That makes sense to me. I got to have this. But to have these, these small enough receivers um, to be able to make this work and to be able to afford that and to have the electricity to, to run it and all of those things, how, how difficult was that process? How long did it take for, for radio? For, for the radio as opposed to the station transmitter um, to become something that was reasonably widespread? Well, it, um, I'm going to guess it probably took over perhaps four, five, six years. Uh, many of these uh, experimental stations were started by, strangely enough, department stores. Um, they established radio departments to sell these things and I guess you have to look at uh, who was developing the radio and the transmitters and in most cases it was um, AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph 
and then Westinghouse got into it, and then later on the Radio Corporation of America, or as we know, RCA. But um, because it was such a novelty to begin with, uh, that you could actually hear people, you know, you could tune in this radio, which was usually battery-powered. Um, some of the early radios were actually two-piece units. You had the uh, the tuner and speaker, and then sitting next to it, you had a big box that was full of batteries. And uh, the reason that the department stores got into it was, A, they could sell the radio, uh, B, in some cases, they could sell the small transmitter, and uh, then they could also sell the batteries as well. But that's where the proliferation started um, as purely, I guess, a novelty. And then as it started to grow, people wanted to listen. And uh, uh, two things happened. You had the growth of the actual physical plant, the receiver and the transmitter and then you had the growth of or the start of programming where there was something there to listen to did Dave, I answer did, the question yes absolutely yes, yes it did when when did program <coughs> excuse me programming start in, instead of trying to hawk goods and services and sell a radio uh, when did programming uh, music and uh, talk shows like, let's say, ROI, start. <laughs> <laughs> well, ROI probably started about, what, five, six years ago, something like that. No, we're, we're a little bit older than that, but we certainly don't go that. back to 1917 either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, uh, I guess you would have to say that about 1921 was when it really started to take off because there were a lot of uh, of these experimental and ham stations that became licensed and, you know, actually had call letters attached to them, and they started to do some sort of programming. And the programming, again, was limited. The um, Well, I'll give you an example. With WOC, they came on at about four or five different times of day for maybe an hour um or an hour and a half, and uh, the programming would be typically uh, perhaps news and weather. Um, then they would sign off and then come back on again with weather and uh, maybe some stock market reports to let people know what was happening with their money if, <laughs> for the few people that could afford to invest in the stock market. But then uh, later on, they would come back with music, and the music might be recorded. Uh, it might be something live uh, because they started to employ musicians, um, again, to fill time. And as time went on, uh, they were able to add to the broadcast day and usually with, um, you know, musical programs or lectures or something like that. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Mm -hmm. 
KLA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author Dave Koopman. And we're talking about the 100th anniversary of radio. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. Ed, as someone who's always on the right wavelength, you get the first question. Thanks, Rick. You're um, welcome. Dave, you, 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 said, you said earlier that, this, that radio started out as a novelty and, you know, maybe at best, I guess, a hobby for some people. Um, how did how and when did uh, advertising work its way into this? Uh, boy, I, I, I wish I had taken a look at a a paper I had written uh, several years ago because I could give you perhaps the date of the so-called first commercial uh, that was heard over the air, but it was sometime. Um, around 1922 or 23 and uh it was a if i remember correctly it was an ad for a uh department store and it was the the first time that somebody paid to have some information put across the airwaves and once that happened you started to see um, shall we say the commercialism of radio start uh, not to take off in a big way, but commercials were started uh, to be heard on radio. And I think what happened was, as other stations found out that, gee, I could make a little money off of this, um, they all started to sell advertising. Okay, Terry. Uh, yes, Dave. I remember uh, back in the 70s, I believe it was, my brother-in-law was really into ham radios. And then about that time, or maybe it was early 80s, we had the CB radio, <laughs> you know, uh, in every, not everybody's car, but a lot of people had them and the big antennas coming out, out, out of your car right. and everything. So my question about the CB radios, why were they such a big deal back then? And is, are they a thing of the past? They, I think they're a thing of the past as far as, uh, shall we say, I don't want to say normal people. Uh, <laughs> that puts the wrong <laughs> inclination on the whole thing. But um, I would say that, yes, it was a fad for the general public to have a CB. But then, uh, oh, geez, uh you, I guess I'm going to say somewhere along the line in there, uh, 
people started to, you know, kind of go by the wayside, but the trucking industry, in fact, they still use it considerably today. Uh, and it's mainly as a way to, I guess, find out um, maybe up-to-the-minute routing issues or um, if they need some help because they've broken down or something like that. But the cell phone has taken, that, uh, you know, most of that over. But you're right, uh, that became <laughs> a very popular thing, and I guess in most cases I would guess that people were just asking about where are the police? <laughs> well, and and Dave, Dave, you right. You may be able to 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 speak to this, but I seem to remember hearing somewhere that this was one of those things that really was created by a a piece of entertainment. It was uh, a uh, a song, a, a country song, that really got that whole craze starting. Uh, started and and then it just kind of snowballed from there for what a few years and then like most fads it faded away but you know there's a situation where where life decided to imitate art i you know i guess i never thought of that but you're right ed the fact that uh um there was something out there in the social world that uh you know piqued the interest of people and um, because the radios were, well, they were, they were rather, uh, I don't want to say cheaply built, although I suppose some of them were, but uh, you could pick one up and, and the antenna and to have it installed for, you know, everything for less than 100 bucks. And, yeah, it became a great piece of entertainment, uh, especially if you were driving. Um, Certainly, there were people who had uh, land-based uh, CB outfits, and there are probably still those today that have them. Uh, again, just for the entertainment value, and you could you could become, in essence, a ham radio operator without having to go through all of the licensing procedures. Sure. Well, and and let's face it, the lingo was cool. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. I got to take a 1019 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Thing. You know, the nicknames, Duck, Rubber Duck and right, right. All of, yeah, you know, all of that hey, was. Hey, Jay, my, my nickname back in the 80s in Nevada was uh, 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 Slick. They called me Slick. Slick but Rick? What, Dave, the, the, when you're driving before cell coverage uh, came about, in the wilderness of the the West, uh, the the CB was what you talked to the truckers on to keep you awake as you drove at night. So sure, it, sure, it had a health it had a health uh, benefit. Um, Dave, I have a, a question, kind of going back more to the beginning. Um, sure. TV definitely evolved or or popularized through kind of a an ex, a, a slow exposure. So I remember the first television the first color television that came into my neighborhood and everybody in the whole neighborhood went to that person's house i'm wondering if the same thing kind of happened with the proliferation of radio was this a 
you know, the 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 corner drugstore or somebody or one person, you know, bought a radio and then everybody came and listened and went, wow, that's really cool. I'm going to save up my pennies and buy a radio. Is that kind of how that worked or was there another way it sort of distributed itself out? No, I would say you were correct with that because I could remember uh, even in some of the, the older movies where... Uh, you know, the plot of the movie took place in the early 30s or something like that, where uh, a department store or a drug store would have a radio on to a program and they would be, uh, they had speakers on the outside where you'd see a crowd of people standing there listening to perhaps a news broadcast or uh, a speech by somebody important or something like that. And I think that, uh, again, may have piqued the interest of, of many, many people when they would hear something like that and think, well, why do I have to stand around outside of a store, um, you know, when I could go uh, have it in my own home? And then if there was a, as time went on, if there was a popular show, uh, perhaps neighbors who did not have a radio yet would uh, they might be invited in to listen to a you know a very popular radio show, and then they'd go out and get their own radios after a certain amount of time. Okay, Rick, do you have another question? Yeah, I was just wondering. I I remember when I was a youth back in the 1800s, not quite, but <laughs> when uh, early early days, um, the radio, uh, the family would gather around for. Um, a baseball game or a political announcement or or a music and these things were like huge pieces of furniture uh, when when did uh the design of the the radio become uh ubiquitous with a large elegant piece of furniture well i think that was i think that was the thing that um uh, uh, I guess, helped sell radio. And the fact that it started to get that way when they got away with uh, having to be battery-powered and more and more homes got electricity, and um, then all you had to do was plug in the radio. But they still had, they were still rather bulky, the actual chassis for the radio, because uh, they had rectifiers and they had big tubes and that kind of oh, thing. Yeah and the big oh, speaker. Yeah. Um, so to package that, they put them into a very nice uh, cabinet of some sort. And um, I can remember, oh, this was when I was in high school. We moved into a, the folks moved into a new house, and um, the previous owner had left a rather large radio. And some of the stations were pre-programmed into that radio. And very honestly, I, we could pick up um, Cleveland, Chicago, Des Moines, Omaha rather easily. Um, it had, uh, it must have had a, a pretty good antenna wrapped up inside of that thing somehow. But um, that's when, you know, it... it they they could downsize the original radios from uh, the receiver and the power source 
once they got uh, or electricity started to get into every home. And then to follow that up once more, once uh, the Bell Telephone people invented, if that's the right word to use, the transistor, then the radios could get smaller and smaller. Okay, Ed, do you have a question? Yeah, um, I grew up a little listening a little bit to, and at night listening a little bit to um, the Clear Channel AM stations. Um, that some of which went almost coast to coast, um, and I believe those stations had some kind of special license or something, where once the sun went down, they were amp- they were allowed to really jack up their power. Um, can you talk about how that started and what became of it? Yeah, they didn't really jack up the power. What happened was all the stations that had lesser power, or quite a few of them, would sign off. Uh, they had the, uh, there were a variety. Of, for instance, there was what they called the uh, 50,000 watt clear channel stations. Uh, WHO in Des Moines is one. WLS in Chicago is one. Uh, let's see, WABC in New York was another one. And for instance, um, WLS, when uh, at nighttime and the conditions were right, they covered 38 states. Uh, during the daytime, of course, no, that wasn't possible because. You had a lot of 1,000-watt, uh, 5, 6, 10,000, 20,000-watt stations on the air. But the daytimers especially, once they started signing off, or some of the um, lesser wattage stations, maybe they signed off at midnight, uh, then it allowed, I guess, you the, the simple way to say it, there were fewer... Uh, broadcast broadcasts bouncing around uh, in the air, and it allowed the clear channel stations to really boom out across the country. Um, same thing with uh, what they call directional stations. Uh, at sunrise, they they had to either lessen their power or they had to change their uh, transmitting patterns. And to give you a real good example of that, KSTT uh, had a pretty much, let's call it round pattern of broadcasting during the day. But at night, so they didn't interfere with a station in Salt Lake City, Utah, they had to send their signal more or less north and south. Well, if you lived in the Watertown portion of East Moline, at uh, sunset, you lost KSTT, sure. which was right across the river. But if you were up at, uh, let's say, northern Wisconsin, it boomed in there very well uh, because of the pattern change. That's interesting. Well, Dave, it's customary that we give our guests the last word on this show. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, why do you think knowing about the history of radio is relevant in today's world? Well, oh boy, it, it is very relevant in the sense of um, it.
it gives one a perspective of what's happening in the country through the news. Now, that's not to say that, uh, you know, with all of this fake news stuff that we hear about, uh, does not bounce out into the, the, the world of radio as opposed to just television. But it's relevant, um, I think, because it is, it is expanded in the types of, of music, uh, the types of programming, especially with the development of uh, national public radio. And there are some great programs, uh, well, let's face it, like ROI, uh, good interview programs. Um, uh, you can learn a lot through some of the educational radio and television, for that matter, Um uh, I guess that's what makes it still relevant today. Well, and if I can sort of piggyback off of that, I think the other thing that that makes it relevant is really it it made information almost instantaneously receptacle, you know, for the first time. For the first time, you could hear something and know that you're getting it in a matter of, maybe moments or minutes as opposed to a telegraph system where it might have taken a lot longer for the for the information to actually get transferred to the average person that's a very good point you know so very good point instantaneous yeah and i'm just i'm thinking about we may talk about a little bit in the the uh podcast segment of our show um you know something like war of the worlds orson wells piece which which totally freaked people out because they weren't they were still thinking of of radio truly as this instantaneous news and you know if you didn't tune in at the very beginning and get that disclaimer (laughs) you thought it was actually happening and and uh that is probably the best example of of you know what you were just talking about um Obviously, I've I've heard the broadcast, you know, or the rebroadcast of it uh, somewhere along the line, and uh, you, you kind of wonder, my golly, how did these people actually believe that? But you're right; if they did not catch that disclaimer, they thought it was happening, you know, at the moment. But we can even go back to when the Hindenburg blew up. Um, sure, you know, there was Herb Morrison from WLS, and it was a big deal. To uh, you know, they sent him there just to talk about the landing of this big ship and so on and so forth. And he happened to be in the right place at the right time, and then describe exactly what he was seeing. And uh, I am sure that uh, uh, people may or may not have caught maybe the ferocity of what happened, but uh, had a pretty good idea of it. Uh, at the time, and then of course, when you uh, when you see the film of the Hindenburg uh, blowing up, and you hear Herb Morrison and how he describes it, my golly, uh, uh, it's not only a great theater of the mind, but a visual too. Sure. Well, well those, uh, those his statement, uh, the horror has been with us ever since then, and that was broadcast over radio. Yes. So if I could be so bold, I will say when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, 
St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 375th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. We would like to thank our guest, author Dave Koopman, who talked with us about the 100th anniversary of radio. The history buffs for today's show... Uh, were Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.